that if you took all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ and they were quarters and you stacked them on the state of Texas, it would be eight feet deep. And if you took one of those quarters and painted one side of it and somebody walked over and picked up the right quarter the first time, that is the same mathematical equivalency as somebody fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 32 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And in this episode, we will be discussing whether salvation can be obtained by works or by grace alone, through faith alone. And we have DW joining us in this episode. DW, welcome back to the Removing Barriers podcast. And thank you for joining us once again. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Great. We'll start by defining some key terms before we get into the meat of the matter. So DW, tell me, what exactly is salvation? Well, I'm sure if you were to Google the word, you'd get lots and lots of hits. But in a basic sense, salvation means to be delivered from something or to be saved from something. So if you were in a fire and a fireman came in and, you know, drugged you out of the fire so that he saved your life, then he was your salvation in that sense. I also thought of, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more, you know, from a biblical perspective, but I thought of Exodus 14, 13, where it says, and Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today for the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again, no more forever. And they're standing on the edge or the periphery of the Red Sea. And God is their salvation in that moment. He protects them from Egypt and he completely saves them from Egypt. He was their salvation. Right. And I did some digging and the word appeared about 164 times in the Bible. So it seems like it's very important to God. But Mm -hmm. what exactly are we being delivered from? We know Of course, the word itself means deliverance, but what exactly are we being delivered from? Salvation really has three parts biblically, and that's justification, sanctification, and glorification. When someone receives the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that's what the Bible calls justification. And they're justified, or in a legal sense, they are pronounced not guilty. Being delivered from the penalty of sin. Right. Yep. Being delivered from the penalty of sin, sanctification is being delivered from the power of sin and then glorification is that wonderful day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he saves us from the very presence of sin. Yeah. And I think about Romans 5, 9, what do you say? Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. So that being mm-hmm. delivered from the penalty of sin there. And then I think also 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, when he said, for God who had not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, definitely, we know that we are being delivered from that penalty of sin. We are not going to be punished. Mm-hmm. Our due punishment will not be given to us because of this deliverance. And as you say, right. one day we'll also be delivered from the presence of sin. Yeah, justification really is seen very clearly in Romans chapter 5. Sanctification is really pictured in Romans chapter 6 where, you know, Paul talks about that ongoing battle and who you submit yourself to and so forth. 
Um, and then glorification is seen in numerous passages, but First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, where you know when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, etc. Do you have anything to add to that? Salvation is a gift from God, according to Ephesians two eight and nine, and that it's the prerogative of God, according to Romans nine verses fifteen through eighteen. He talks about in Romans nine how he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And of course, all of the other scriptures point to the fact that he has mercy and compassion on those who humble themselves, on those who turn from their sin, on those who believe on him. But those were the only two things I had regarding salvation. It's his gift and it's his prerogative. All right. Mm -hmm. What about works? Let's define works. What are works? In a basic sense, to work, you know, requires movement. It's the performing of an action. It's labor. The Bible talks a lot about works. In Genesis, you know, chapter two, we see that God is working. I mean, really starting in chapter one, right. you know, with the creation, you know, but in chapter two, it says that he ended his work, mm -hmm. which he had made. And he blessed the seventh day because in it, he had, you know, rested from all his works. So, you know, God clearly works. Man was made to work. Also there in chapter two, after God finishes creating man, he puts him in the garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. So man was made to work. In Deuteronomy 24, it talks about man's physical labor. And there it says that the Lord, thy God, may bless thee in all the work of thy hands. So, you know, there's man's physical work. In uh, Titus 3, 5, it says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Mm -hmm. Those are spiritual actions. Isaiah 64, 6, you know, talking about the same kind of thing, it, it says that all of our righteousnesses, those works that we do, there's filthy rags. Galatians chapter 2 says that no man is justified by the works of the law. So, you know, the Bible talks a lot about works. Yeah, one thing that stood out to me when I was looking into this as well, the Bible talks about works, but then the Bible seems to talk about a phrase that I'm going to call good works. It seems to somewhat distinguish works and good works. You think about in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where, what Jay mentioned, that the Bible uses the phrase good works. And what exactly does the Bible mean when it says good works? I think if you're looking at it through our eyes, we will say that those are works that would lead to the second part of salvation, which is sanctification. Those mm -hmm. are works that somewhat pleases God after we are saved. So those mm -hmm. are works that are in obedience to his commandment. Those are works that will point you or point someone else to Jesus Christ. So they're evidence of your faith. And mm -hmm. we're going to get a little bit more into this when we talk about James. But even in Isaiah, you mentioned Isaiah 64, 6, which said, but we are all as unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. So you think about that, even that aspect of it, when the unsafe person, good works, the Bible says in his eyes, they are like filthy rags. But for the, mm -hmm. the safe person, those same good works are evidence, not to God, but to your fellow man that the spirit has wrought some sort of change in your life. Yeah, I mean, even earlier we mentioned 
you know, how John the Baptist told the Pharisees and Sadducees to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, the demonstration of salvation having taken place, you know, that evidence is good works. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say that works are basically just outward actions demonstrating an inward reality. In the scriptures, there are many instances where people wanted to demonstrate repentance, and so they would sit in the dust and put sand on their hair or dust on their heads and wear sackcloth in order to demonstrate something that was happening internally. Let's take baptism. We are baptized in order to demonstrate the inward reality of salvation having taken place. And so when the reality on the inside matches the actions on the outside, that's a good work. That's what pleases God. This is why I'm thinking all of our own righteousness are like filthy rags before God. This is probably why good works can't save. Works can't save because anyone can, let's take the good work of visiting I don't know, the sick in the hospital or something. Let's just take something like that. Everyone does that, saved and unsaved. The question is, which one glorifies God? Which one is true? Which one is a reality? Well, if the saved person is doing it, the reason why it pleases God is because it's reflecting the inward truth, the inward reality of being made right with God. Otherwise, it's a hypocrisy. You could be taking a meal to someone in the hospital, for example, but inside you're not right with God. It doesn't please him. Yeah. Long story made short, it's outward action demonstrating an inward reality. Yeah. Keying on that, I thought of Proverbs 21.4, which the second half of the verse says, the plowing of the wicked is sin. Right. So, you know, you've, you've got a man who's just going out into the garden to plow the garden and produce some food for his family. And God even calls that because he's wicked. Right. You know, sin. So it really does come down to, I mean, Solomon, the wisest man of the world said, there is not a man upon the earth which doeth good and sinneth not. You know, so our actions, when they're done for ourselves and from our own motivations, then it's not pleasing to the Lord. You know, it makes me think of Psalm 51, where David talks about, you know, God not being pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. And then he, you know, he asks God to clean him and stuff. And then he says, then shalt thou be pleased sacrifices and so forth. So yeah, I mean, it has to do with the motivation, the source of that work. Yeah, definitely. As you was mentioning that, we kind of dancing around the next question because we're looking at, are there actually good works? And I think we have shown that there definitely something called good works because the Bible does sometimes use works and then sometimes you use good works. And of course, I'm also thinking about Matthew 5 and verse 16, but the Bible say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good work and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And of mm-hmm. course, we mentioned Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God. And here, what the Bible says, not of works. <laughs> he didn't put the qualifier, good works, so it doesn't matter what kind of works it is, whether it's sure. good or bad, not of works, lest any man should boast. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at verse 10, of course, he said, for we are his workmanship, Creating Christ Jesus, what unto good works. Now we put the qualifier back there of good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. Yeah. So definitely, I would say yes. There's something called good works, but the mm-hmm. question is, can these good works actually save us? Yeah. When you were saying that, 
you know, another verse I thought of with that phrase, good work in it, First Timothy 3, 1 says, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Right. And so I've had people, when I've knocked on the door, you know, tell me that they're going to go to heaven because they're a preacher. But you're asking, are there any good works that can impress God and get to heaven? Well, I'm, I'm sure being a preacher, right? Wouldn't that qualify? Someone asked me that once, but they asked me about the Pope because they figured the Pope is doing a lot of good work. Right. If that's the case, then, you know, we don't have to go back to the old questions that everyone asks. How do we know when we have done enough? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we know when our good works outweigh our bad? And will our good works ever outweigh our bad? Those are some questions we have to look at because realizing that we are sinner mm-hmm. and even the good works, quote-unquote good works that we do, as the Bible said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, they're like filter rags before God. I yeah. heard one person explain it this way. It's not necessarily that the work itself is bad. You know, helping an old lady across the street is not bad, but the hand that is offering it is bad. So therefore, God cannot accept it. It's like me yeah. going to the supermarket and buying a nicely fresh apple but then I'm offering it with a hand that is full of poison or whatever. The apple is fine, but the hand that is offering it is bad. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what, when we try to offer God our good works, God is saying, I can't accept that because the hand that is offering it to me is full of sin. Mm -hmm. And that's why our good works would never be enough to get us into heaven. I would just contend and say that it's not that the work itself is any good. The hand that's offering it has contaminated the work. And at its very core, it's not aimed at the ultimate goal of everything, which is the glory of God. And so it's a double whammy. Not only is the work no good, even if it were good, the hand that is offering it, like MCG said, the hand that's offering it contaminates the work. So even if you tried, you can't get there from here. Yeah. The first time I heard that illustration or an illustration like it was on a audio CD that Brother Tall made with a couple of folks and they were doing a little bit of a role play and the, the folks that he was working, they were playing the part of some Muslims and he was having this dialogue with them. And he mentioned, he said, you know, he asked the fellow, I think, what his favorite fruit was. And he said, an apple. And they said, you know, if I offered you an apple and I had a dreaded communicable disease, would you take this apple from me? And the, the fellow said, oh, of course not. And he said, well, then how much more would God accept a work, no matter how good it is, from defiled hands and from a defiled heart? Yep. As both of you were talking, I thought of Mark seven twenty one. Through 23, which uh, Jesus says there, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, those people that are saying to him, Lord, Lord, they clearly know who he is. And he says, but he that doeth the will of my father, which is in heaven. And then he says in verse 22, many will say unto me in that day. And I think that's the day of judgment, Lord, Lord. So again, they know who he is. Right. Have we not prophesied? And that word prophesied in the Bible, you know, a lot of people think about it as in foretelling the future, but actually there are more references to prophesying being forthtelling or preaching the word of God, not necessarily, you know, telling the future as such. 
So many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied or preached in thy name? So they're preachers. Right. And in thy name cast out devils. So they, they were able to even do miracles. And in thy name done many, not good works, many wonderful works, the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And in response to that, Jesus says, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. So he doesn't hinge it off of their preaching or their miracle working or their wonderful works. He hinges it on the fact that he did not know them. And then he says, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. He's, so he called their preaching, their miracles, and their wonderful works iniquity. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, sometimes when we look at the fact that we believe our good works save us, I believe we're looking within ourselves and fail to see ourselves for who we really are. Because I think if we can truly see the fact that we are sinners and we are depraved and really see us in the light of our fallen nature, I think we will back out and say, you know what? Within me, that's within my flesh, there's no good thing. I think if we can see ourselves for who we really are, then this thing that I can work my way to heaven or I can do some sort of good that it will go away because most of the people I've encountered that believe their works can save them except for a few maybe Mormons that add works onto grace but maybe expect for a few they don't see themselves for the sinner of who they are yeah as we're saying this I thought of Luke 17 where Jesus is talking about the unworthy servants. And he says, but which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I trow not. And that word trow just means I think not. So likewise ye when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. So all these good works that we think we're doing and, you know, like people think keeping the golden rule and whatever, these are things that God has commanded us to do. So when we do them, we're just doing our duty. It's like me showing up, you know, at work and I just do, you know, like at work, we actually reward people with a bonus that go above and beyond. But when you just show up and you do the things God's commanded, you're not going above and beyond. You're just doing your duty. (laughs) You're just obeying the commands. Meets your expectations. Exactly. There's actually really no way for you to exceed those expectations because all the things that we would do that are, you know, quote unquote good are commanded of us by God. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. So, I mean, that's what the Pharisees tried to do. And the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked them for trying to earn their own righteousness yeah so with all that in mind are there any good works that can actually impress god and to get us in heaven let's look at some of the good works that folks believe that can actually get them into heaven we're going to go through a list of some of those good works and decide whether or not they're good enough to get into heaven let's start with giving money or time jay I would say that these are not sufficient, not good enough to impress God or to create a way to enter heaven because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need 
your money, or your time. The reason why we give those things is in response to the mercy and the grace he shows us and salvation and saving our souls and saving us from the power of sin. And so if that's not a reality in your life, who cares if you give your money and your time? It's not worth anything. So I would say no for that. Yeah, definitely. When I think about that, though, the question begs in my mind and in my heart, if you can give money and time, how much money and how much time? You know, this children's song, Hallelujah, 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 Praise the Lord. When we sing that song in the islands, I don't know if in the U.S. they actually have this verse with it, but usually we sing Hallelujah, Hallelujah, we repeat that twice, but then the third time around, we change the words and we say, if salvation was a thing that money could buy. And then, of course, the other one said, praise the Lord. Then we said, the rich would live and the poor will die. Then we go, praise the Lord is not so. Praise the Lord is not so. The question begs, how much money? If you set the bar at 10000 yeah, a lot of people in the U.S. probably could be able to afford salvation. But there's a lot of people in third world countries that can't afford that $10,000. And then, let's say, are we going to set it at 100000 Then you eliminate a whole lot of people in the U.S. right there. Then if you say, okay, let's set it at a million, huh. eliminate a lot of people. How much money and how much time is it that you have to give to actually be awarded salvation? And I believe because God is no respect of persons, but of course, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercies, he saved us. The Bible make it clear that giving money and even time will not get you to heaven. I used to teach a Bible study, and there was a fellow there named Paul that I was talking with one day after the Bible study. And he asked me, you know, but what about these guys? I'm very confident he was a saved man, and I don't think he was asking me so that he could hopefully do you know, a whole bunch of good works. He was trying to get some things straight in his mind. He grew up as a Catholic and so forth, so he was just trying to get his doctrine straight. And he asked me, he said, you know, why can't somebody like a Warren Buffett that has you know, tens of millions of dollars, or I'm sorry, tens of billions of dollars, why can't he, you know, take that and do enough with that money? And so we talked a little bit and I asked him, I said, you know, is the penalty for sin, is it finite or infinite? And after a little bit of conversation, we agreed it was infinite. That's why hell and the lake of fire is, is eternal. It's eternal death. It's, you know, it says in Revelation, it says that lake of fire is forever. So it's an infinite penalty. And in fact, in John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, depart ye into everlasting fire. So again, that penalty is eternal. It's infinite. And then I asked him, I said, okay, well, how many people could Warren Buffett actually feed on the face of the planet? And we concluded with his billions of dollars, it may be possible he could somehow feed everybody on the face of the planet. I said, well, for how long? And after we worked out a little bit of math, we we determined it wasn't for very long at all. Could he feed everybody on the face of the planet? And so clearly his money isn't infinite. Right. So how is it going to rescue him or save him from an infinite penalty if it is not infinite? And Paul, the light bulb went on for him. He was, you know, happy that he, he had this answer. So if giving could somehow save us, then it would have to be infinite because it's got to rescue us from an infinite penalty that we have. Yep, I like that. How about 
making religious privileges? Well, I know we'll, we'll probably mention this verse a couple of times, but Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness. So even if that pilgrimage was a work of righteousness, the Bible just automatically cancels that out and says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So that pilgrimage doesn't help, even if it was a work of righteousness, because works of righteousness can't save us. How about religious ceremonies, Jay? I'd say no, because all of those ceremonies are empty. Ceremonies are supposed to be symbolic. They're supposed to represent something that is true, something that's a reality. And then you come together, you celebrate that thing, you talk about that thing, you make ceremony, you make a big deal of that thing. Well, I mean, if salvation is not a reality in your life, that ceremony is empty. It means nothing. And so religious ceremonies, while they might have a place in terms of holding up cultural realities or cultural norms, they have absolutely no value spiritually in terms of saving anyone or fitting someone for heaven. And evangelizing? Well, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Wow. So he told them they were evangelistic, but they were going to make those people that they were proselytizing children of hell. So apparently proselytizing can't get you to heaven either. How about those that tack grace, as I mentioned a moment, is by grace after all you can do. If you put in some sort of grace on it, then and you work. Can that actually then, can that good works actually help you by grace? Because the way one moment explained it to me was that it's like you get to a certain point by your works and then grace kind of just push you over the top. When we believe that somehow some work that we do can count toward salvation or justification or glorification, for that matter, we cheapen what Christ actually came to do on the cross. Definitely. If we could do something to help out in our fallen state, to help bring about our salvation, then the sin must not have been that bad. It's almost like you fell into a hole that you can climb out of. But the reality is we fell into an abyss that we could never uh -huh. even see the end of. There was no saving ourselves. So if we happen to say that we are saved by doing all that we can do, and then grace kind of pushing us over the edge, well, then the sin wasn't that bad. And Christ really didn't have to come. He really didn't have to pay because going back to what DW said before, the reason why our money and our time is insufficient is because the penalty of sin is infinite. And so the payment has to be infinite. And everything that we can do, whatever it is that we can do, none of that, there's nothing that we can do infinitely. <laughs> and so I would say absolutely not for that particular right. one. Again, to go back to what I asked earlier, how would you know when you have done enough? How would you know you have done enough so grace can actually push you over? But then only that is spit in the face of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we quote already, because the Bible mm -hmm. says, 
For by grace are you saved through faith and not of thyself is a gift of God. And if you go to work for that gift, then there's a problem right there. It's no longer a gift. And right. Christ's sacrificial death upon the cross was enough for us to be saved. Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm like amening here because I'm thinking of Romans 11, 6. It says, and if by grace, which you just quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, mm-hmm. and if by grace, Romans 11, 6 says, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So God says it's either work or grace, but not both. Yep. And and then you said there, you know, it spit in the face of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And you're saying his sacrifice wasn't sufficient. I thought of Isaiah 53, 11, which talks about the father seeing the travail of the son's soul and shall be satisfied. Amen. He doesn't say he'll see your good works and be satisfied. He doesn't say he'll see your church membership, your keeping of the golden rule, your religious pilgrimages, your proselytizing, any of that stuff. He says that he shall see the travail of his son's soul on that cross and be satisfied. Yeah, so we have established that giving your time, going on religious privileges, religious ceremonies, evangelizing, mixing grace and work, your church membership, none of those are good enough. But Mm -hmm. the one that I've encountered the most, that most people will tell me, hey, what about this one? Well, this one is not the most, but this second, I would say, second actually keeping the golden rule or the Ten Commandments. Can we actually keep the golden rule or the Ten Commandments? No. I mean, even if we could. Galatians 2.16 says, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But the answer is no, none of us can keep it. Solomon said again, he said, there's not a man upon the earth which doeth good and sinneth not. Paul echoes the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 3, where he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. So, no. Yeah, and I also think about Romans 3, 28. He says, therefore, we conclude that the man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law Mm -hmm, that's good and if we go back to the definition of works works is actually our deeds our action or deeds and the bible says without the deeds of the law so Mm -hmm. clearly you know even in galatians 3 11 i think you might have quoted this one but that no man is justified by law in the sight of god it is evident for that the just shall live by faith Mm -hmm. and galatians and romans just slap this all over the place and say (laughs) hey ten commandments golden rule is impossible they're not good enough and Mm -hmm. let's be honest we can't keep the golden rule we can't keep the ten commandments well right in that context if you're talking about the golden rule there that takes place in the sermon on the mount and in the context of the sermon on the mount jesus says be perfect even as my father in heaven is perfect so if the golden rule is your standard then perfection is your standard it's not just a matter of keeping the golden rule you better be perfect yep of course, we know we cannot be perfect. Right. Because there is not a man upon the earth which doeth good and sinneth not. <laughs> and of course, the Bible makes it clear that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ in Galatians 3, verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by what? Faith. And a schoolmaster in Paul's day was so when parents would have their child taken to be tutored, 
they would have a schoolmaster that would come to their home and they would take the child by the hand and take him to the school. And so the law is our schoolmaster to literally take us by the hand and bring us to Christ because the law can't save us. The schoolmaster couldn't teach them. He would actually take them to the school so that they could be taught. So we saw that these good works cannot save us. But what about this one? Baptism. I'm telling you, if I have to put a percentage on this one, it will mm -hmm. be probably 70% of the questions of the good work that folks say, what about baptism? So I'm asking you, DW, can my baptism save me? I would point us to two verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, and Romans chapter 1, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 says, this is Paul speaking. He says, for Christ sent me, that's Paul, not to baptize. Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. And there's a comma between the two and a conjunction between the two. And that conjunction is a but, which means that it's a contrast. So clearly baptism and the gospel are not the same thing. Baptism is not part of the gospel. And you say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, the big deal is in Romans chapter one, verse 16, Paul says, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's the gospel that's the power of God into salvation, not baptism. And baptism and the gospel are not the same thing. So the gospel is what saves. Baptism is not a part of the gospel. It can't save. I fully agree with you. But I was watching a video on YouTube and the question the moderator asked to John MacArthur was this. Mm -hmm. He was talking about the Doc Dynasty group of fellows in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, from the Doc Dynasty episode, they pray at the end of yeah. every episode and stuff like that. I but, think they're Church of Christ or something. Right. I think they're Church of Christ. And they believe that baptism can save you. Mm -hmm. And the moderator said that he actually contacted their elder brother, which is actually was a pastor or is still a pastor. And he asked him, why do you believe baptism saves? And one of the responses that the elder brother gave was that they don't believe baptism is actually a work. How would you answer that? I don't think it matters whether it's a work or not, though. That's not really the question that was posed to him. I mean, the question is, does baptism save? And it, it doesn't. Whether it's a work or not, I think is irrelevant. But to answer the question, I think it is a work because it's something, it's a deed you're performing. And when Christ went to be baptized of John the Baptist, he said, you know, that they should fulfill all righteousness. And so it required an action. So I don't see how baptism could not be a work, but irrespective of if it is or isn't, that's irrelevant. It's not part of salvation. Yeah. The way I look at it is this, because I'm thinking that even if it's not a work, as you're saying, you're attacking something on to grace. Mm -hmm. And the Bible never make it clear that we are saved by grace and baptism. Mm -hmm. And I know we're going to probably have an, another episode where we actually dive deeply into baptism because there are a lot of things about baptism we can talk about. But Oh yeah. Well, there's different types of baptism in the Bible too. But Right. So to me, you're tacking something on to grace. You're tacking something on to the finished work of Christ. And I believe that anything you're going to say that is added on to what Christ done for us upon the cross of Calvary, his death, burial, and resurrection, which the Bible declared, according to the scripture, to be the gospel, 
if you're going to pack anything else onto that, then you're making salvation a requirement upon something else besides just the grace that Ephesians 2 talk about. And that's where right. I have the issue. And of course, I definitely agree that baptism in a work is a religious work. Mm. It has to be a religious work because it's something that we go out there and physically do. I believe baptism actually is a second step of a salvation wherein it's yeah. identifying with Christ. What the Bible talk about in Romans, where the Bible talk about we're dead with him and we're rising newness of life. So it's definitely a work. Is there mm. something that we do actually to show the world now that we're identifying with Christ? That's what baptism is about. So definitely, if we're doing something to show people that we're identifying with Christ, it has to be a work. Yeah, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is telling the disciples, go ye therefore, teach all nations. Teach is a verb. It's something you have to do. Teach all nations. And then he says, baptizing them, also a verb. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them, again, another verb. So he's talking about works. Things that you would do. All right, so... If baptism cannot save you, and baptism, as we established, is a work, the question begs in my mind, why did Christ got baptized? Well, he says there to John to fulfill all righteousness. So it was part of the Father's plan that he be baptized. He says to John the Baptist that they should fulfill all righteousness. And Christ is our example. That's certainly one reason. And when we get baptized, it's represented of us identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I think you already mentioned. And so he did that as our example to teach us that we ought to do likewise. And again, this was part of the Father's plan, so that's why he got baptized. It wasn't because he had sin to be washed away or anything like that, because the Bible makes it clear that he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Yeah, and this Adam Clark quote that you shared with me some time ago you said was christ was circumcised and observed all other ordinances of the law of moses mm -hmm. not with a view of his own justification but to fulfill the dispensation committed to him by the lord the god and creator of all things so yeah i think that's important to also note because he did follow the old testament law mm -hmm. because remember it was before his death so it was still under the law. It was still, the law was still applicable to him. Yeah. And I think also it kind of legitimized John the Baptist's ministry mm -hmm. by Christ going and being baptized by him. Because, of course, John was the last prophet, quote unquote, of the Old Testament, or the last Old Testament type prophet. So therefore, Christ said, hey, see this guy right here? He's the real thing. And the Bible does describe John the Baptist as saying that of all the men who have born of woman, they're none greater than John the Baptist. Mm. You know, so Christ said, hey, he's the real thing. So I think Christ said, hey, he's the real thing. It also is marked the beginning of his public ministry. The Bible said the spirit of God descended on him like a dove and all those things. Right. So it showed that, hey, this is the beginning of Christ's yep. ministry. And the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Testament would fade away and the New Testament would come to the forefront there in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately. Right, so we can simply conclude there that his baptism wasn't because baptism saved, 
Because again, if you're going to do this baptism saved, then did Christ need saving? No. Exactly. I would agree with everything that was said and tack on to that, that his baptism also, I suppose for the people that were there at the time, helped everyone identify who he was. Because before Jesus came to him to be baptized, John was telling them that, you know, I'm not the Christ, but there is someone coming whose shoe I can't even touch. I can't even unlatch his shoe. He's the one that you need to follow. And so everyone's like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Well, the scriptures also tell us that Jesus wasn't anything impressive to look at physically. There's nothing about him that was desirable, that we should desire him, the scriptures say. And so in order to identify who this person is that John is compelling us to follow, compelling us to obey, they had to identify him somehow. And that was one of the ways that he was identified to the people. And so, again, when you say it's not a salvation thing, it's more of an identification thing. It's more of a, the whole transition between Old Testament and New Testament, everything that was said prior. That's what his baptism was about, not about salvation. Of course, he didn't need it. So no one can really attribute being saved to Christ's baptism, or and somehow because of that, we ought to be baptized to be saved as well. That wasn't the point of his baptism at all. Yeah, you're listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. We have DW joining us, and we're discussing whether salvation is by works or by grace alone, through faith alone. When we come back, we're going to look at the difference between grace and faith, whether or not faith and repentance are works, and more. We'll be right back. Do you have the desire to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints? Answers in Genesis can help. They provide biblically sound books, CDs, DVDs, homeschooling materials, VBS materials, online courses, digital downloads, and the Answers magazine, and more. Plus, tickets to the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Go to the Answers bookstore by clicking the link in the description section below so you too can be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason of the hope that is in you. So we have established that there is no good work upon this face of this earth that can actually save us. So let's dive into, is salvation by faith or by grace? DW, take a shot at that one. Well, that's a great question. Salvation is by grace but you can't be saved without exercising faith. But it's not the faith that saves you, it's the grace that saves you. There's some verses I'll reference in just a second. I think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that we mentioned earlier, where it says, for by grace are you saved. And then it says, through faith. And so when you go in the shower and you take a, a shower, you're not washed by the shower head, you're washed by the water that comes through the shower head. You're not saved by the faith. You're saved by the grace that comes through your faith, from God to you through faith. And so that reaching out is the faith, and it's God's grace that saves you. I remember reading a commentary on a verse in Romans where the Bible's talking about how Abraham was saved. In fact, it's in Romans chapter 4. Right. And it says, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. So that word believe is translated from the same Greek word that we get faith from. It was Abraham's faith. In fact, in Genesis, he uses faith or believe. I'm sorry, there it says also believe. But anyway, so he exercised his faith. He believed 
it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And there in the commentary that I was reading, it was from Charles Spurgeon. He mentions how Abraham's faith, he demonstrates how Abraham's faith was imperfect faith and, and so forth, and et cetera. But he makes the point, really strongly makes the point that even if faith were some sort of work or whatever, it is not what saved Abraham. It's not what saves you and I. It's God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. Yeah, definitely. And I fully agree to the point that I will even tack anything onto that. Do you have anything to say, Jay? No, that pretty much covers. I always liken salvation, whether it's by grace or through faith. And I would say grace as well. The grace of God could be boiled down to the fact that he's even willing to save us. That's the grace right there. If he wasn't even willing to, we'd have absolutely no chance of being like none like that wouldn't even be a question not even possible but the mere fact that he is willing and went through everything that was required in order to make salvation possible that's the grace of god that's what saves us it makes it even available makes it even possible mm-hmm. without it it would be impossible yeah definitely we can have all the faith we want to have but without grace we'll never be saved exactly because mm-hmm. you know it's just that you know faith alone doesn't save anybody it's the grace that god give us because some people say grace is god's riches at christ's expense it's god giving us something that we did not deserve and if faith can get us there without god giving us that grace then they're definitely a problem and of course we know in galatians 3 that we might be justified by faith and you know in galatians and in romans there's a lot of by faith, by faith, by faith. You mentioned Galatians 2, 16, where it says being justified by the faith of Christ. Right, and Romans 5, 1, where it says, therefore being justified by faith. Galatians 3, yeah. 24, also used justified by faith. Yeah, interestingly, in Galatians 2, 16, and I don't want to go down this road too far, because it's not necessarily the point of this particular podcast, but it's not actually our faith in Galatians 2, 16. It's actually Christ's. Right. It says by the faith of Jesus Christ, not by the faith in Jesus Christ. So it's actually Christ's faith. And he does actually have a faith. That's a rabbit trail. We don't want to go down tonight, but it's his faith that we're saved by, not ours. So talking about faith, our faith and repentance works. What would you say to that, Jay? I wrestled with this a little bit, but I would have to say no, although I'm going to struggle to explain Faith and repentance, I would characterize them or define them more as responses, or it's the most reasonable response to a grace or a mercy that God has shown upon us. I think of it like, let's say if there was a man who was committing adultery and he feels terrible about it. And he goes to his wife and begs for her forgiveness and promises never to do it again, etc. If she extends that grace to him and forgives him, that's not something that he earned. He didn't work for that. He didn't earn that. She graciously gave it to him. And so his response, the repentance, the sorrow and all of that, it's not a work. Like when you work for something, you get paid. You earn something. You earn a wage, if you would. And it's not a work, it's a response to something that God did. Yeah. And repentance, I think the Bible 
paints a clear picture that repentance is actually just a change of mind, really agreeing in regard to salvation. It's agreeing with God's word about salvation. So it's changing your mind about that. He talks to the Thessalonians and says that they turned to God from their dumb idols. So that turning, that decision to turn was repentance. Exodus 13, 17, I think, if I'm not mistaken, is the first time repent is actually used in the Bible. And there it says of the children of Israel that God did not lead them through the way of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest peradventure the people repent, change their minds when they see war, and they return to Egypt. So their return to Egypt was after their changing of mind, if you will. So repentance isn't a work, it's just a change of mind. Yeah, of course. And the Bible does define faith in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, no faith is a substance of things over the evidence of things not seen. That's definitely, to me, doesn't spell out works in my mind. Mm -hmm. Of course, repentance, a change or making a U-turn or whatever the case may be, spiritually, in your mind, that doesn't say work. But we can even go back to your response to baptism. Even if they work, they still don't save. They don't save you. Yeah, I think that's what Jay was saying. And that's what I was trying to key off of is, you know, this husband's changed his mind about, you know, the things that he's been doing, but that's not what mended his marriage. It was the fact that she extended grace. Exactly. Someone might bring up Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 8 to 11. I've heard people describe that reference as a definition or a picture of repentance. Let me just read it quickly and I could ask both of you, MCG and DW, what you think. In verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I've heard several yeah. people describe that as what repentance looks like. And I wondered what you all thought about those verses. So here, Paul's talking to saved people. He's not talking to unsaved people. So when he says, for godly sorrow, work of repentance to salvation, not to be repented. He's talking to them about what they did in first or in response to his first letter. He wrote to them about the fact that they were puffed up about this man that was committing adultery with his stepmother and so forth. And he admonished them for being, you know, puffed up and basically saying, yeah, we're the most inclusive church because we've got a man here that, you know, and we're still letting him come to church and so forth. And Paul rebuked them for that. They got things right. The church disciplined him out of the church. And he's telling them here that their godly sorrow worketh repentance. So they're seeing that they were doing wrong, worked repentance to salvation. And what the salvation is from is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, because of their sin and taking the Lord's supper lightly in the midst of all this sin that was going on in their church, he said, there were many weak and sickly among them and many slept. People died. Uh, yep. And so here, the salvation is not a salvation from eternal death. It's a salvation from the chastisement of God. So there's different types of salvation in the Bible. 
you know, that when Moses said to the children of Israel, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, he wasn't talking about them going to heaven. He was talking about them being rescued from Egypt, a physical salvation. Gotcha. You know, so this salvation is not a rescue from eternal death. It's a rescue from being sick and, you know, the chastisement of the Lord. And that's why he says there, once they've seen the truth and they've repented and they, that brings about their salvation in this sense, it's not to be repented of. In other words, they shouldn't turn back. And then it says, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so Judas Iscariot had worldly sorrow, but not godly sorrow. And, and so that's what Paul's talking about here. And, you know, he confirms that in verse 11, he says, for behold, the self-same thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Well, they were sorrow again for what happened in first Corinthians, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, you know, what fear. Right. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. So they did all these things. They had indignation. You know, they kicked the guy out of the church. They had fear of the Lord and they got right. They had a zeal and so forth because of their godly sorrow. And then God stopped chastising them. There weren't as many weak and sickly people and God stopped killing people in the church. I mean, to be frank. <laughs> yeah, so as we continue on the vein of faith and works was their old testament saints saved by works and the new testament saints saved by grace absolutely not and you know i've got a couple of verses here jay i'm curious though for your thoughts before you know i jump into that i don't think that people in the old testament were saved any differently from how we are saved today or how people were saved in the New Testament. It's just a matter of which direction they were looking. They were looking forward to the Savior mm -hmm. while we are looking, if we're thinking linearly, of course, we're looking back at the cross, they're looking forward toward the cross. Right. For example, we know that because the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God and God accounted that to him as righteousness. And so I think that Old Testament believers were believers just mm -hmm. the same. They were just looking forward to the cross while we look back to the cross. That's what I would say about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, Noah found grace in the sight of God, yep. you know, and so forth. So, I mean, we could go on, you know, there's every person in the Old Testament that was saved, if you want to use that terminology, and they were saved, but it was still by grace. Like you said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So, in him exercising that, God gave him grace, just like he would give me grace, yeah, and has. <laughs> yeah, and I think about Romans 5, verse 1 to 6, I'm sure those are the verses that you alluded to earlier, DW, and he said, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, had found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had way off to glory, but not before God. For what said the scripture? Abraham believed God and he was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of death. But right. to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justified the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And if you go on the Bible, other mentioned David, he said, even as David also described the blessedness of man, unto whom God imputed righteousness without works. So clearly the Bible is showing us here that they weren't saved any differently than we are saved. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. 
you got to verse six there. He's quoting David in the Psalms. Verse seven says, you know, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So as a saved man in the Old Testament, when David was forgiven of his sin, God said, I'm not going to impute iniquity to you anymore. And, you know, so here we're seeing two Old Testament figures, Abraham and David in this context in Romans, that, you know, we're being told, Paul's using them as an illustration to show us that salvation is not by works, but it's by grace through faith. And so they were saved in the Old Testament, according to Paul, just like we're saved in the New Testament. All right, so I think we have established that salvation is not by works. But let's go and look at some seemingly contradictory verses, a seemingly contradictory books in the Bible. Let's compare the book of Romans with the book of James. In the book of Romans, the Bible repeatedly say, justify by faith, justify by faith. And in James, mm -hmm. James talk about said, hey, show me your faith without your works, because faith without works is dead. Are these books contradictory in each other? No, not at all. The first thing that we need to establish in our minds is that there are no contradictions in the Bible. I would agree with that. The whole Bible is God's word. And if any part of it is contradictory, then it's not true. And then it's not God's word and so forth. It just breaks down immediately from there. So the only way for it to be God's word is it has to be pure, free of error, etc. And so there are no contradictions in the Bible. So if there's some seeming contradiction that the issue is, is not with the word of God, but it's with our understanding. Yep. And in James chapter two, James is when he says faith, if it hath not works is dead. He's just meaning it was dead to begin with. It never had life. So, you know, again, John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. He was saying that in order to be saved, but if you're actually saved, bring forth fruit. And James is essentially saying the same thing. If you don't have fruit, then you never had faith. You never were saved. The interesting thing in this context, because I've heard people use this passage before, because they both mention Abraham, and they both talk about similar things. In James, it says in verse 17, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Believest thou that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest then how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And then he goes into something I'll get into here in just a moment. But the interesting thing up to this point, he's talking about Abraham at the place where he went to offer Isaac on the altar. That's important because when you then cross-reference that to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 1, you've read you know, several of these verses here already, but it says, what shall we say then, that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And then several verses later, in verse 9, the Bible says, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also, for we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision, 
And then Paul says, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he even says there, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. So the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter four is that Abraham had faith before his circumcision. And that was what was counted unto him for righteousness. So that's when the righteousness was counted unto him. So that's when he was saved. And then, and so the question I would have for you, MCG, is when he was circumcised, was Isaac born yet? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't born yet. So this faith that he had that was counted unto him for righteousness took place before Abraham's birth. So he was saved before Abraham was ever born. Isaac. And James is talking about he was justified by his works when he offered Isaac upon the altar. So now Isaac's born. That's 17 years or so later that Isaac has been born and he's old enough to take upon the mountain and sacrifice him and so forth. So he was saved 17 years earlier. And there here 17 years later, he's being justified by works. Well, what James is clearly talking about is not justification before God, which is salvation. He's talking about being justified before men. And you can see it in the context because he says things like, I will show thee my faith. He's not talking to God there. He's talking to his fellow man. I will show thee my faith by my works. So again, John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. So if you're saved, bring forth fruit. James is saying the same thing. If you're saved, bring forth work. Yeah, I definitely like that explanation because as we pointed out to, we have the justification, the sanctification, and I would say sanctification definitely needs some sort of evidence before man. Because mm -hmm. you want to show to your fellow man, hey, of course, we don't believe in lifestyle evangelism, but we're showing before men that there's some kind of change within us. Let your light so shine before men that we may see thy good works and glorify thy Father which is in heaven. Another, oh, yeah. right, another similarly contradictory verse because we are saying that salvation is not by works. It's by grace alone through faith alone. But mm -hmm. then in the gospel, Jesus made a statement to saying, hey, and that is in Matthew 25, verse 41, and it's also repeated in the book of Luke. He said, I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Is Jesus saying here then that salvation is by works? Because clearly those are works that Christ say, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, there in Matthew, he separating between the goats and the sheep, which is a demonstration. And so he's showing that, you know, in their life, they demonstrated whether they were his children or not by their works. He's not saying those works made them his children. He's saying they demonstrated that they were my children by their works. And he's going to demonstrate that in judgment when he separates between the goats and the sheep. But that's not the time that they're saved at the judgment. They're going to be in one of those two groups because they were saved or not saved. They didn't do those works to be saved. They were demonstrating either that they were saved or not saved by their works. So again, it's the same principle that we were just right. It goes about. right back to sanctification. And I like what one person said. He said, sanctification is a process where the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Ghost, takes the Word of God, that's the Bible, to make you more like the Son of God, and that's like Jesus Christ. And of course, mm -hmm. our goal as Christian is to daily day by day, try to be more 
like the Son of God, Jesus Christ. How does God transform us into that? It's a process. The Bible talks about in John 17, 17, that sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So I do believe that sanctification has two parts to it, or two beings that are involved. I believe the Spirit of God, God is involved in sanctifying us. And I also believe that we have our part to play as well in our sanctification. Not in our salvation. Sanctification is separate from salvation. But we have a part to play in our sanctification process where the Spirit now can take the Word of God to make us more and transform us more like Jesus Christ. Because that's the ultimate goal, to be like Christ mm -hmm. in salvation. Yeah, Romans chapter 8, he's going to conform us to the image of his dear son. Amen. So let's wrap it up and put a bow on top. Is there any work good enough to satisfy God or is there any work that any person can do to satisfy God? Well, in Isaiah 53, 11, again, there, God the Father looks down, and that verse was written several hundred years before Christ was incarnated in the flesh. God the Father looked forward and said, I see the travail of my son's soul and shall be satisfied. The exact wording of the verse is, and he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Again, the Father's looking forward, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and he says, I'll be satisfied. So really, God's wrath was satisfied at Calvary. It can't be satisfied by us. It can only be satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. And for three main reasons. So you're saying that there is a person works that's good enough, and that's Jesus Christ. Yes. The work that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross is the only thing that could satisfy the Father. And, and the reason for that is because it was a work that Christ was sent to accomplish. It was also a work that he could accomplish. And thirdly, because he accomplished it. Amen. For those three reasons, God could witness the travail of his son's soul and be satisfied. So in the first place, you know, Christ was sent by his heavenly father into the world to accomplish a particular purpose. And we see that in John chapter three, in verse 16, it says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then in verse 17, it says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In Isaiah 53, 11, in that context, it's talking about the righteous servant there of God. And that righteous servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, God purposed in himself that Christ should come and purchase mankind back from the separation that sin caused. And shortly after Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, God made his first mention of his redemptive plan in Genesis 3.15, where he talked about the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And near the end of all things, God confirms that this was part of his plan from the very beginning. He says in Revelation 13, 8, that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So that was, the plan was determined. He knew that this all would happen and he determined a plan. And this plan is the cause for which the father sent the son into the world, that he would give his life a ransom for many. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. So this is the work that Christ was sent into the world to accomplish. But it was also work that only Jesus Christ could accomplish. Throughout Scripture, interwoven into the revelation of himself to man, God progressively reveals elements of his redemptive plan. 
Many of these are in such grand detail that the Lord's righteous servant could only come live and die during a specific time in history in a very particular place and in an extremely precise manner. In other words, so exact are the details that only one person in all of history could fulfill these prophecies. None before the Lord Jesus Christ, none after him would be able. It was either Jesus of Nazareth or it could be no one at all. Some of the intricate features of some of those prophecies include such aspects as the place of his birth, a very specific Bethlehem. There were lots in Israel, but one of them is very specifically named as the place of his birth in Micah 5.2, Matthew 2.1. Other prophetic facts describing his life and ministry are so profound that the contemporaries of the Lord Jesus Christ saw the relevance of them and found it nearly impossible, really impossible, to refute that he was indeed Christ. And you can see that in John chapter 2, verse 23, John chapter 7, 12 through 43, John 12, 42, Matthew chapter 21, 18 through 16. Perhaps, however, the most convincing of those which chronicle his death and his burial and his resurrection, a number of them appear in Isaiah chapter 50 and 52, near 11 of chapter 53 that I read earlier. And one of those in Isaiah 52, 14 is telling about his suffering and his face and his form would be marred more than any man. And that's because the Lord Jesus Christ was scourged by a professional Roman soldier. Those men that were chosen for that task were often especially chosen because of their strength and skill. And unlike the Jews who would beat a man just 40 stripes save one, the Romans generally were not told when to stop which is why I find it fascinating, his description of this in the Lord's description of it in Psalm 129, when he says, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows, Psalm 129.3. Other portions of the word of God detail how they would mock him, tear out his beard, spit in his face, beat him with their hands. You can find that in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, Mark 14.65, just as examples. They jammed a crown of thorns down on his brow, Matthew 27, 29. And this is why in Isaiah 53, Isaiah calls him the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And one psalm, he says, I looked for pity. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. And that was fulfilled when Jesus Christ was there being beaten and so forth. There was nobody around that took pity on him. Not only was this a work that no one else could fulfill due to the exactness of the prophecies, but because of two other requirements. The Lord's righteous servant spoken of in Isaiah chapter 53 needed to be righteous. And he also needed to be a man. You might say, well, I don't understand. Well, we find that no man is righteous. That's what we talked about earlier. Solomon said, there is not a man upon the earth, which doeth good and sinneth not. Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 18, tell us the same thing. So there's no man that's righteous. And yet this servant in Isaiah chapter 53 is called righteous, and he would have to be righteous. So many would like to claim that their ways aren't evil, but even two kings of Israel, David and Solomon, acknowledged that they were sinners. David did so in Psalm 51, 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon acknowledges that he is. And so if this servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 were merely a man, he could not be righteous also. So when approached by the rich young ruler there in the gospel, Mark Jesus said, why callest thou me good? There is none good, but one that is God, Mark 10:18. So the crux of the matter 
you know, since there's only one that's good and that's God, for Christ to be good, to be righteous enough to pay for the sins of the whole world, which John says he was the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, in order to be righteous, he had to be God. And in order to taste death for every man, he had to be a man. And that's what Hebrews 2, 9 says. He came into the world to taste death for every man. So the importance of all this is Jesus, for hundreds of years, there were all these prophecies about him and so forth. So not only was he sent into the world to accomplish this, but he's the only one that could. These hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. One person has said that if you took all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were quarters, and you stacked them on the state of Texas, it would be eight feet deep. And if you took one of those quarters and painted one side of it, and somebody walked over and picked up the right quarter the first time, that is the same mathematical equivalency as somebody fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. So the only way for someone to be the right fit was they would have to fulfill all these prophecies. So Jesus was sent to do this. He's the only one that could. And thirdly, he actually accomplished the work. He left no piece of it undone. After his cruel treatment on the tree, he cried with a loud voice and he said, it is finished, John 19, 30. And I love that Greek word there, to telestai is the word that's translated as it is finished or finished. And it's a seamstress term, actually, very interestingly, when the seamstress would be weaving, when she finished it, she would say to telestai, meaning it's finished, the work is done. So Jesus's work as the righteous suffering servant from Isaiah 53 was finished. So God, the father looked on the travail of his son's soul and agreed. It's finished. So that's why Isaiah 53 says, he saw the travail of his soul, or he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It's not my church membership. It's no work that I can do. It's only the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only work that can satisfy God because the payment was made in full. God's great wrath towards sinners was satisfied because Christ was sent to accomplish their redemption. He's the only one that could. And he did. Amen. DW, thank you for joining us on the Removing Barriers podcast. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. And I love every opportunity that I get to be here. Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us or to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm forward slash removing barriers. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.